Yo, 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 welcome to episode number, uh, I think it's 35 of the Basketball Card Podcast. I am your host, Adam, the 27 guy, or uh, the real 27 guy on Instagram. Uh, thank you for joining the podcast today. I hope it's awesome. Hope you like it. Hope I don't forget anything because I've got so many things that I want to talk about. Um, the um, Yeah, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. I invite you to subscribe if you haven't already uh, or tell a friend. That would be amazing. Um, I do have to say the numbers for the last few episodes have been like really, really crazy cool. Um, I'll be really transparent about it. I think the average over the last three episodes is a little bit over 300 listens, which is crazy because four years ago when I was doing this thing um, and I thought I was doing a pretty good job, I think I only ever had like three episodes that went over 300 or maybe four or five episodes. So to just be like having that happen over and over again is amazing. So you guys are great. Um, I thought last week's episode was really good. It was about the connection between hedge funds, private equity funds, venture capital funds, and cardboard. And that sounds super pumpy, but I don't think that's actually how it came across. In fact, I had a couple people reach out and say, hey, why are you dogging the card market? And I was like, I'm not dogging the card market, but I, I do want to just tell kind of how I see it. So um, I have a lot of basketball cards, and um, so I obviously don't think that... Um, they're going to just tank in value, but it's totally possible. And so we talked a little bit about that, and um, I try to be pretty transparent. So uh, go back and listen to that. If you haven't listened to that, that's probably going to be better than this. But who knows? Maybe this will be this will be awesome. I do have a lot of stuff to get through this week, um, but want to finish going through my intro here. Um, I uh, hope I don't lose anybody with this next comment. I'm going to start doing another countdown. Uh, next or, or later this week, maybe on Saturday, I'm going to start counting down my top 100 cards on Instagram. Again, at the real 27 guy. Um, I've done that each of the last two years. Two years ago, I did it on blowout cards. I posted a card a day and just counted down from 100 down to one. And in the process of doing that, I told um, a little bit about each card, maybe a lot of bit <laughs> about each card, uh, several paragraphs in some cases. Um, I can definitely talk about my cardboard. That's that's never been an issue. In fact, I've had people make fun of me for that. I just love to write. And I'll write walls and walls of text. And I don't even care if anybody reads them. I just keep writing. Um, something that I really love to do. So, um, yeah, that's going to start later this week. And I would uh, suggest you take a look at it if you're interested in seeing what it, what it is that I collect. I have collected every kind of basketball card there is. So... Um, when it comes to the history of basketball cards, it's like something that I really have a passion for, both vintage and modern. And what I do is I rank the collection, every card in the collection against each other. I find the best 100 cards. This year I'm gonna actually include sets in this. So best 100 cards or sets in my collection and then rank them in terms of value, monetary value from 100 down to one. And every time I post one, I'm probably going to need to post a video or a picture. Last year I did a video on Instagram. The problem is Instagram only gives you 60 seconds, and that's not very long for wanting to post a video. I, I think I'm going to try to do that, though. I think it went well last year. It was received pretty well. Um, I think I'm going to do it again, so check that out. Okay, now that I've lost half of the people who, who, were, who were coming to listen today, um, I'll tell you two, two last things, um, and then we'll get started on this thing. So. Um, there's another podcast out there called Pack to the Future, and they do a lot of like prizes and cool things. 
Um, there's two guys that do the podcast. One of them is one of my best childhood friends, Chad. Chad's a doctor now, and he fell away from the hobby for a time, but is back and is doing awesome things. I won this contest, and tonight I went out to my mailbox, and there was an unopened box of 2017 status in my mailbox. And uh, I thought that was so cool. So he, so I won the contest last night, and t- tonight, today at some point, he drove by and just left that box in there. And Aaron, my son's gonna flip his lid when tomorrow we get to open that. In fact, I went in and I told Aaron as he was going to bed, "Hey, guess what? We've got this box of cards." And Aaron wanted to get up and open it then, but his mom would have killed me if I would have let him do that. So my wife is uh, my my wife's happy that I did not did not get him up. Okay. Go listen to Pack to the Future podcast. Go subscribe to them. They're awesome. Okay, so today's episode I think is going to be pretty good. Um, I asked with short notice just a few hours ago, I asked uh, everyone uh, if they had any questions or anything that they wanted me to talk about on today's episode. And I had a few replies, and then I had a few replies earlier in the week, things that I talked about and people suggested that I talk about on this um, episode. So I'm going to go through those things. There's five things I want to cover. I think they're each pretty interesting. And then after going through the five things, I'm going to start a new segment, the first segment in the history of the show called Beckett Bites. Hopefully I don't get hit with like a, um, <laughs> hopefully hopefully Beckett doesn't like say, you're not allowed to do that. Because um, I think it's actually cool. I think it's I think it shows support for them. So Beckett's magazine back in the 90s was really like just the authority on all things cards. And those old Beckett's are amazing. So a couple of months ago, I went out and bought four years worth of issues. And now um, I've gone through a lot of them and highlighted things that I think are interesting. And so today, at the end of this episode, I'm gonna take three minutes and take you through the July 1998 Beckett which um, I pulled out randomly from my stack. And I said, I'm just going to pull this one out randomly. Whatever I get, I get. And that, and that's this one. And I think this is a really good one. There's five or six things from the issue that I want to highlight real quick, and I'll do that in three minutes. But I'm going to do that at the end of this episode. The first thing that I'm going to do is take you guys through five questions. I'm going to try to spend only a few minutes on each question. But you know me. I can get kind of wordy sometimes, so I'll try to keep it short. Okay. The first question came right after um, last week's episode, and it's from a great Michael Jordan collector called Frankie3500. And Frankie is a shop owner who um, who's in Puerto Rico. He and I did a successful deal on an MJ card a couple of months ago that's probably already worth like 30% more than what I sold it to him for. You're welcome, Frankie. Um, uh, but he seems like a great guy. Um, he probably seems like a great guy to me because he and I, I feel like, agree on a lot of things. Um, the question that he asked, it, well, let me just, actually, I'll just read the message. This is what he said to me. He said, love the podcast, Adam. Would love for you to elaborate on the difference of collecting versus investing a bit more. There's a misconception right now that they are the same thing and the investment angle is hurting the collecting angle. He goes on to say, there are definitely times when collecting and investing overlap. You can collect one player or set, team, etc., and just sell away all the other stuff. Or you can just buy some cards to later sell to fund a bigger PC item. What people don't realize is that when you do this, the money stays in the PC. Um, it's 
interesting because as a store owner, I live all the hype of the new customers. Uh, but ha but as a collector, um, sorry, I'm switching screens here. But as a collector, ah, sorry, this is for the wrong reasons. I see it all the time in the coin collecting world where people think they can just find a $10,000 penny in their pocket change and get mad when you tell them it's not. Most new people that start to collect coins usually are just looking for a payday, a lottery ticket. When they actually find out how rare the coin is, they're usually frustrated and leave the hobby with a bad taste in their mouth. I would hate to see this happen in the sports card world. All these people buying base cards for hundreds, of, hundreds and thousands of dollars are in a terrible position to get burned. Some of these base cards are low pop simply because they aren't worth the grading fee. Once people start seeing the prices degraded and start submitting these base cards in bulk, the market will flood. Sorry for the long post. I definitely learned a lot about the investment side of things and how to understand it more in relation to cards. So this is an example of an awesome awesome message to get that took frankie some time to write that up but it was super well thought out and the idea that maybe my podcast a little bit had a little bit to do with some of the things he's thinking about here makes me go yes that's why i'm actually doing the podcast so that really smart people can well, hopefully you know hopefully you know really smart people um can listen and in and then and then and then learn different things and come to their own conclusions about things and if they totally disagree with me that's great um I just give my perspective and try to like just say, hey, here you take take what you you know take this information and do what you want with it, um, and um, not trying to. I'm, I you walk a fine line as a podcaster for for sports cards because there's a temptation to just talk about the things that you own, and you usually own the things that you own because you have passion about those things. So it's hard to not just talk about them. Uh, but I but I like to talk about all sorts of different things in this hobby whether they're things that i own or not and so i try to be transparent about what i own and also try to talk about all sorts of different things but anyway let's get back to frankie's question frankie's question is a great question so he starts by asking about you know elaborating on the difference between collecting and investing and then i think he just did a great job of explaining it um in the, the way that i think about it and we could do a whole episode on this but the way that i think about it is you have a spectrum right a line and on one side of the line you have somebody who is a pure collector and then on the other side of the line you have somebody who is 100% investor and what's interesting is in this hobby for it well and let me back up you got all sorts of people that are in between that spectrum and I think most of us fall somewhere in the middle most of us aren't on one side or the other I kind of cringe a little bit when somebody says I'm a pure collector and you know that they buy and sell stuff all the time. And, um, sometimes they don't. Some people just buy stuff. But there's sort of this like snooty, arrogant, sort of like looking down or, you know, looking down your nose at people from, from certain segments of the hobby. And that's unfortunate because none of us are better than the others, other people are. You know, just because if, if you don't think that somebody who's an investor is like <laughs> worth your time as a human, then I guess that's fine. But that's not the way that I feel. I feel like everybody in this hobby is is welcome. And what I think is really interesting is a lot of us, like a lot of us, went through a, a phase where we were pure investor, where we were purely about the money. But the hobby has a way of drawing you back in 
Um, you know, there's a lot of people in the hobby right now who have come into it for reasons where they are here just to make money. And a lot of people are really anti that. I'm anti the idea of only being here to make money and leave the hobby in shambles after they leave. That's going to be what some people do. That might be what a lot of people do or a lot of the new people do. But I also kind of give thought to the idea that there are people who will come and they'll stay and they'll start out as pure investor and then they'll realize along the way that they love the rainbowy glow of prison silver or that they love the chase or putting together a set or finding this thing that completes a run or you know that thing that that keeps all of us really interested in the hobby that we all have passion for that different collecting side of it sometimes that's born out of first an investment love um and frankie's point here i think is but you can't have everybody be just on that investment side and it seems like that's the way it is sometimes i agree that it does seem like that you've heard people talk about the tulip mania um, this is something you learn about in business class where they're when you when you're learning about bubbles there was a the the tulip bubble um, of the whatever 1800 I don't know I don't know when it was I don't remember at this point the point of that or at least one of the points that I drew from it when I took the class 20 years ago was that in the end you need somebody who is an end buyer somebody who really wants the thing that, that somebody else is selling and if you don't if everybody else if everybody in the room is just looking to buy it and then sell it for, for more at some point in music like like in musical chairs the the music stops and you've got to find a chair and uh, or in this case you've got to find somebody where that card's gonna live because it's not always gonna be the focus there's always another season on the horizon knock on wood there's always another season on the horizon um, but I think I think what Frankie's point here is is like we need to encourage those collectors to collect we need to not just focus on the financial side of it that's a big part of what this podcast is about um, it's funny to say that when I've just done an, an episode on um, private equity and venture capital. Um, and although that's the industry that I work in, my cards are a passion that are not, that's not just about money, but it was for a time. There was a time probably 10, probably between 7 and 12 years ago where, you know, I, I was getting out of debt from school and those types of things. And and uh, and I was more concerned about the money, but uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's seriously nothing wrong with making money on cards, but a lot of people come back come back around. So um, I think wherever you are in that spectrum is fine. Um, I think when people, like Frankie said, when people buy cards, then to sell, then to increase their collection, that's really interesting, and that's that's fine. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. So Frankie, good question. I could spend a whole episode on that. I'm going to keep going though so I don't just take forever like I always do. Okay, the next question that I've got came from... Uh, let me get there. Let me get there. Okay, so this was interesting. I'm not actually going to tell you who this one came from because it's a... Um, it comes across as negative towards other people. Um, but I got a message today from a really good collector, and he said, he said, and, I, and he might not even care if I said his name, but I'd hate to say it and then um, make him feel bad. Excuse me. 
So he said, talk about the recent explosion of repetitive hobby content. And I messaged him and I said, um, I said, can you explain more? And he said, content being regurgitated with the recent increase in shows, podcasts, etc. I understand the excitement, but too much of the same info is being repeated. I said, interesting. Do you think mine has been along the same lines? I'm genuinely curious. And he said, you bring, um, he, said, he said some positive things. And then he said some positive things about some other podcasts that he feels like does uh, are, are more sort of real and passionate and, and not just kind of a sales job. I think what's happening, and, and I pointed this out to him in the message, and I'm not going to re read that message back verbatim, but I think what happens in our hobby is um, we, we definitely have um, a lot of groupthink. Groupthink, for those of you who haven't, um, maybe who haven't taken the, you know, who haven't heard that term before, or haven't uh, learned about it in school or whatever. Groupthink is when a group, it's what it sounds like, uh, it's when a group of people kind of all take on a similar mind to one another. And it's very easy to have happen in this hobby, um, especially with a small number of shows and, um, and, and people looking to really follow the leader in this market. What's really interesting is, although some people feel like that's the way that you should do things in this hobby, I actually feel the exact opposite. I really do. I feel like when everybody is on a bandwagon for a certain thing, that's exactly the wrong time to, to get into it. And now, now I'm talking about investing, by the way. Um, but this, I think, can be applied to, to the collecting side, too. I genuinely don't like collecting things when everybody else wants them. I like collecting things when when it's my thing and i like talking about it i've been incur i've been um i've had people accuse me of pump pumping a, a lot of times what's interesting about pumping and dumping is pump pumpers and dumpers buy uh buy stuff and then after they buy it they pump it they try to get it to to artificially increase and then they sell it i've always pumped stuff as i've been buying it so i'm i'm never i've never been really smart about <laughs> if pumping was my intention i've never really been smart about it because I've always talked about things that I'm buying and what's and like I say, I typically am interested in things that other people aren't. In fact, once everybody jumps onto something, that's the moment where I'm like, shoot, now I feel like it's overvalued. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the saying that you need to zig while other people zag is, is interesting. Um, and um, the, the, the thought about being um, fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful is interesting. Um, and I think that applies in this situation to buying things that other people aren't, aren't all in on. And once people are all in on it, that's probably not where you want to be. And again, that's, I think that's both from, true from a collecting perspective and from an investing perspective. Um, so I think, I think groupthink is bad. I think we want to make sure we're being very honest and genuine with what we think in the hobby. Um, and I think we need to put our hands in the air sometimes and say, I don't agree with that person. And so let's say, for example, that like this podcast ended up being like the biggest sports card Bill Simmons podcast of all time. There's a 0% chance of that happening. But let's say that it did. Let's say then I got really full of myself and just believed certain things were going to go up or down or whatever. 
My suggestion to you would be to not listen to me at that point. My suggestion to you would be to figure out what you like. Again, it's what I ended last episode with, and it's something um, it's something that I talked about recently um, when I posted some eminence cards. Um, the thing that is absolutely true in this hobby is that the things that end up being the most popular are the things that um, are the things that people genuinely just like. Um, and, and what you need to do is you need to figure out what you like. And a lot of times, um, people will just gravitate towards what other people are liking and then, then they'll buy it when it's at its peak and then it'll decrease in value. And they'll be like, well, I thought that everybody else liked this. That's because you were buying something based on what other people, what other people liked. Buy what you like. Right? And if you can find something that, that you really like, that you have passion about, and everybody else doesn't like it, that is the best case scenario. Right? You want to find something that nobody else likes that you love. I was lucky enough a few years ago to find that with a couple of different products. And um, it's, what's funny is sometimes then you let people talk you out of it. And then later you end up regretting that you let people talk you out of it. Find something that you like. Buy that, enjoy that. If other people catch on, great. If they don't, great. At least you bought something that you loved and uh, and, and that's all that matters. So um, to that user who talked about uh, who talked about how um, you know there's this group think in the hobby, I think all the shows and different podcasts and things, we're all trying to come up with things that people want to hear, but also sometimes maybe we gravitate towards talking about it in the same way as each other. I hope I don't do that. I hope I'm honest always, and I don't. I try not to listen to what others talk about before I talk about the same thing, and then try to give you my genuine take. And I'm just one dude who's collected for a long time. I don't. I'm, I'm not some great like podcaster or some great you know theory guy on this. I just tell you what I think, and hopefully some of it will make sense. Okay. Question number three came from the Devin Current thirty seven, and what he asked is a really simple question. He said, are base card prices going to hold their current prices? So I think what he meant was, are base cards going to hold their current prices? My answer to that will be very similar to most of my question, most of my answers about um, price questions. And the answer is, I have no idea. Prices move in all sorts of weird ways that I don't understand. Um, but I'll tell you about the um, economics of it that I do understand. And that is that a lot of the base cards that are being purchased right now, um, but I'm not going to give specific examples to this because um, different base cards are limited in different ways. And so you can't, I'm painting with a really broad brush right now when, I, when we talk about base cards. Base cards, as far as I know, are numbered as low as eight and not numbered, but is, you know, created as many as like millions. So we're painting with a broad brush right now. But if we're talking about 90s base cards that there's tens of thousands of. Let's start there, okay? So tens of thousands of base cards out there in people's shoeboxes somewhere have gone crazy in value, like absolutely certifiably insane in value. Does that hold constant? Well, for that to hold constant, what, what will have to happen is a couple things. One, the quantity that is existing will need to, will, if it, if it comes to bear, you know, if it is dug out of the closets and whatever else, 
then those will need to continue to be to have demand. And either the people who have previously bought them or new entrants will have to come into the market and support that if that price is to stay the same. Or, you know, so those people can, like one person can say, I'm just going to own, I'm willing to spend $50 on all 10,000 copies of that. They're going to spend half a million dollars in that process. Uh, but they, they they may do that. There's people who are hoarding to a, to a degree at this point that that is actually possible. Is it likely? I will let you to, you to answer that question. Um, the other thing that's possible is as these things go up and as people take notice, there are investors or people who may become collectors who jump on that wagon and say, I'm going to get into this too. And if they can help support it, then it, then that can then that can really support that to, to continue and then if you have new new people enter let's say that let's say that next year is the greatest year of collecting of all time and, and uh, there's 10 times the number of collectors by the end of the year that they are that there are now that sort of thing is possible we've seen incredible growth in the last couple years um, that it could happen again and if it does it could support that could support that sort of growth if those things don't happen the cards that are in the that are in the, the boxes are still going to come out because not all of them, but a lot of them are going to come out because when people hear that things are increasing in value, they go and they find them and they list them and they sell them, right? So um, those that's the basic economics of it. What do I think will happen? I'm not sure. I think that some cards um, probably have more reason to be considered important to the hobby than they've been considered before. I think some base cards, not really talking about early 90s now, but maybe some from the mid to late 90s, and then some from you know the last 10 years are rarer than people understand um, and uh, are more important than people understand. And when people think about things that are both iconic and rarer than people understand, sometimes they can really hold their value, especially with people hoarding them the way that they do now. You know, you can have a card that, that there's, say that you can have a card that there's 20,000 of where people, where, where you know, 20 different people are willing to own, own up to 200 copies each. And they can go own 20% of the market real quick and they can buy up everything for a long time. And, and, and as they do that, they can effectively change the value of, of a card. They can fix the price. Will they be in cahoots forever? Maybe not, but maybe they will. Um, and sometimes that can actually create real value because other people latch onto it. It's a really strange hobby that we have. Like I talked about last week, when you have thinly traded assets, weird things can happen, and things are more easily to easily manipu manipulated. And uh, I'm not saying that that happens or that it, that it happens all the time, but it's something to be pretty nervous about, I think, and um, that's even true when it comes to base cards that, with that higher print run. Okay, thanks, brother. That was a good question. All right, question number four. I need to open my phone for this one. Um, he asks, this is a this is a good, good uh, Instagram user who I've talked to a few times about different things recently, and this is the question that he asks. He says, is there going to be a short squeeze on a, on graded cards with all the virus stuff going on? And I, I wasn't sure what he meant, and so I said, you mean like a shortage on certain graded cards? And he said, yeah, PSA and BGS not grading and harder to find nice graded cards, and who knows when they get back to normal. 
Oh, I forgot to mention this guy's name. I, I, I think I forgot. His name is Sportfish underscore Card Collector. I started to um, started to introduce that name, and then I kind of forgot. Sportfish underscore Card underscore Card Collector. Um, and I've had a few conversations with him re- recently. Seems like a really good guy. He's got a kid, and they open boxes together and stuff sometimes. And so, um, thanks for for the question, dude. Um, so uh, he said, yeah, PSA and BGS not grading harder and harder to find nice graded cards. And who knows when they get back to normal grading. So we'll inflate the ones that are out there for the for the off for offer temporarily. I think that's really interesting. And this is something that I've considered a little bit. Um, and I just hope that people are smart. You know, when a card is graded, it doesn't make the card rare. You can have a card that is graded, and it's rare that that, that that card has been assigned that. Kyle from the Wax Museum podcast has posted a, a Chris Mullen 1991 Fleer recently that is graded a BGS 1.5. And that is, not shockingly, a pop one. Why? Well, no one is ever going to grade the Chris Mullen card, even a mint condition version. 1.5? Of course it's a pop one. It's always going to be a pop one. You'd have to be insane to get that card graded, right? So, does that make it worth something because it's because it's a low population? Well, well, uh, uh, no, it's not. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty cool actually because because it's so different and because you can have that sort of conversation about it. But just because a card is graded high doesn't make it rare, right? I think you know when people when people talk about low populations when they used to talk about low populations. It had to do with cards that were graded, you know, hundreds of times, and only a few of them would be nines or tens or whatever. You talk you you talk about it a lot when it comes to vintage cards. You know, you might have a card from from especially in baseball, the blackboard set. I think it's 1963, maybe. No, that's wrong. 60, maybe it's 63. Um, that's a really hard to grade set because obviously the edges and corners are just really impossible to get in, in good shape. 1997 Precious Metal Gems are one of those, actually. Very uh, condition sensitive. I've owned probably 20 through the years, and I've only had a couple that are really nice. I had a Tony Kukoc that is beautiful, that I actually sold to Devin Grant, who was the asker of question number three. Um, but, uh, but cards that are easy to get in a good grade, and that are... Um, and that are really popular for the next little while while the graders are slow or not grading at all, there could be a demand. And especially with some cards that are already sort of baked as how important they are, there could absolutely be a demand, an increase in demand, especially if there's not a lot of copies that have been graded. So that creates a really interesting situation for buyers because what you have to figure out is, you know, how many of these graded copies are there going to be? Because if people are holding raw cards out there and they see that the graded version is selling for 10 times as much, don't you think that it makes sense that they send them in? And if they all realize that at the same time, which they will, and they all send them in to get graded and half of them come back as 10s, is that going to hurt the market with a population that's ever increasing? Of course it will. Of course it will. But in the short term, weird things happen. I'm not a short term guy. I'm a long term guy. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you to go try to time the market because you can get it right and you can get it wrong. And um, I don't think that's I think that's a fool's errand. I don't think you should do it. 
And as I say that, you're you're thinking, oh, I made money on this. I made money on that. I know. I've done the same thing. I've bought and sold things in a couple of days and crushed it. I've also lost money on things too. But in, in general, I think I was like really good at it. Um, but it, it doesn't satisfy me intellectually. It doesn't, it's not interesting. Um, and I, I don't know that, but, but that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with it. You guys, you guys do what you want, but I think, I think you're right about that. He goes on to say, I told him that I liked it and, um, that I was interested in talking about it and some other things. And he said, it's almost like a reverse effect when things normalize cards go down, but with nothing to do, people driving up prices for no reason. Um, he goes on to say, um, my other question would be what happens to breakers during this supply chain disruption? No new product is being released, so how do they fare? I think it's temporary, but you can see an uptick in less desirable wax for sure. I think that's super interesting. Um, the hobby shutdown is causing some very interesting reactions that I think are worth considering, and I want to do that now with you. I'm not going to really consider it from the breaker's perspective because I'm not an expert on that. I don't ever enter breaks. I almost never open wax. It's not It's not my thing. I actually love it, and I'm probably pretty addicted to it, but, um, but I know that that's a way that I can lose a, mo- a lot of money real quick, and I'd rather buy singles. And I'm grateful for those people who open wax because, or who bust wax because that's how we find stuff down the road um, because they've been willing to open it. And hopefully they've enjoyed it too. I'm sure that they have. Opening wax is, is fun. Um, but I'm not going to really answer that question too much because I think I think that that's left for somebody else who's smarter than me. Um, but from a very like high level, yes, if there's a shortage of wax, wax out there and people are basically addicted to opening wax, then they're going to open the next best thing. And so it's going to increase prices and in what is available. Um, the thing that this made me think of, though, that I think is really interesting, and I don't know if others are talking about this, is I think we need to consider the draft class of 2019-20, the Zion class. Is Panini going to be able, do we know, is Panini going to be able to do all of the products that they were planning? Are they going to be able to complete the things that they started? Are they going to scale back some of the things that they that they were going to do you don't get a second rookie year you don't and I've heard people sort of suggest well maybe Panini will try to do a second rookie year uh uh-uh, uh guys you get one <laughs> you don't get two um, and some of you are thinking but in 2011 and 2012 they had two rookies that's because they didn't include those rookies in the first year they only had one year for rookie cards and every player only gets one year for rookie cards and Zion's is 2019-20. Now, the reason that I mention this is 2019-20 for Zion and for any other rookies that end up being really important could be really dramatically influenced by this. I'm usually somebody who doesn't go out there and buy cards until um, the dust has settled. I don't like buying cards when when more new products are to come out. I used to think... um, I wanted to get the very best rookie card, and so I would wait till all the rookies were out there, and then I would make a decision. Panini, about eight years ago, made a very smart business decision to create rookies that are not necessarily the best, 
right? Um, in 2019, they made National Treasures, most of their rookies, sorry, 2012, they made their, their rookies numbered to 199. They made and they made Immaculate Rookies numbered to 99, and they made Flawless Rookies numbered to 20. Flawless only had a diamond. Immaculate was an auto patch, but the patch was small, and National Treasures was the biggest patch and uh, an auto and maybe the nicest looking card, but it was the most plentiful. So you had to figure out what you valued most. Was it rarity? If it was, you'd go with flawless. Was it the biggest patch? If it was, you'd go with national treasures. What, what if it was the rarest patch auto? If it was, then you'd go with immaculate. And so they created this, t this system where you weren't sure which was best. And sorry for that tangent, but what, that, what, what I used to do is I used to say, okay, what is, what is the best rookie? I'd figure it out at the end of the year and then I'd go and I'd buy that thing. Now it's harder to figure that out. But this year is all crazy. And in, it, it's weird because, because people aren't, like, I don't think they're making cards right now. If they are, that's not something that I'm aware of. I know at one point they shut down. Are they going to be able to, to fill all that they plan to do? Are they, I mean, I'm sure there were cards that were already being signed and whatever else, but I don't know if National Treasures was created. I don't know if Immaculate was, and I don't know if some of those other high-end noir uh, sets like that that are important that people really love but aren't considered the top RPAs, I don't know what happens if those aren't created. And what may end up happening is Panini may say, look, we can't make any more this year, and we, we're bound on this. And then what happens is some of the cards that came out earlier this year that I would have never thought were good investments. Some of them may be the best investments because if we end up getting one third the rookies that we thought we were going to get, then those third are going to have to hold the, the market cap for, for all Zion rookies. So the reason that I, by the way, wouldn't have ever thought that it was smart to buy those rookies earlier in the year is because that's a general belief that I have. That general belief is often proven wrong, um, and especially when it comes to guys who end up being really truly all world guys like lebron that can often be really wrong um, but in my experiences there's a lot more greg odins and there's a lot more anthony bennett's and um, even guys that are like blake griffin who've had great careers boy i'm sure glad i didn't buy a national treasures blake griffin rookie in 2011 or 2012 right so anyway um yeah, that that's that uh, that that's that que that's that question, sportfish collector. I think that's um, I think that's a really good question, and I hope that that was interesting to you. Okay, the last thing that I want to read as far as questions, this wasn't actually a question, but it was a, a comment that one of my friends in the hobby mentioned a, a few minutes ago before I started the podcast, and I asked him. He lives in a different area, and um, I asked him what it was like there right now with um, the coronavirus and he said the government has imposed a total lockdown and he, he he writes about that but then he says something that I thought was interesting that I wanted to highlight he says take care man I've never had so much time in my life to do household chores now that everything's done I have more time taking updated picture pictures of my collection starting with and then he walks through it all Here's what's interesting about that. That's what's happening with a lot of people right now. And that's why we're seeing the interest in the hobby that we're seeing. People are stuck in their houses. They're forced to go back through their cards. There's people who haven't collected cards in forever. They're looking through their old cards. 
There are people who are, you know, have been in the hobby for a long time, but are more interested because they don't have anywhere to go. They want to bust wax. They want to fill their sets. It's really an interesting time for the hobby, and it's not something that I would have predicted. Um, in fact, in a previous episode, I talked about, oh, this this might be scary. Who knows what's going to happen here? But um, I also gave place for the idea that there was a chance that, that the opposite might happen. Um, and here we are. Uh, the hobby is actually in a better spot now than it was three months ago, which I, which I think is like pretty amazing, right? Um, I think that there's still lots of things to play out here yet, and we're far from done with this thing. But I don't think the world's ever going to go back to normal. Um, but I don't know. Like, I'm a simple man, and I'm not an expert on these things. Um, but I do think that the hobby is in a really interesting place right now. So thank you guys for those five questions and thoughts. Now we're going to do our first ever second segment of Beckett Bites and look at the July 1998 uh, Beckett, which has none other than Michael Jordan on it. What's interesting about that is um, everybody and his brother is doing podcasts about Michael Jordan right now. And even though the majority of my collection is Michael, major, the majority of the value of my collection probably is Michael Jordan, um, I am going to uh, not talk a lot about Jordan in this episode. Um, I hope I hope you guys you know enjoy the last dance and and obviously it's interesting to see what's going on with these cards, but. But this Beckett that I happen to pull out does have him on the cover, and there's a couple things that I wanted to cover in it. So, so again, July 1998 has Jordan with a number two on the front, um, and this is this is these are a couple of things that I found that I thought were interesting. So on page 11, there is an article called Parallel Conundrum. It's actually just this 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 area of the Beckett is called Reader's Right, and you could email. Beckett, this is back when email was fairly new, um, and you could ask them different questions. And This whole section is like about Kobe Bryant and his rookie cards and refractors and um, Topps Chrome. A lot of Topps Chrome conversation in here. And this is a question that was asked in 1998, so over a year after the original Chrome came out. The um, article, the Q&A is called Parallel Conundrum, and the question says, why isn't the 1996-1997 Topps Chrome set considered to be a parallel of the regular 1996-97 Topps issue? Have you ever thought of that before? Why isn't it considered a parallel? Both sets are exactly alike. So why does Topps Chrome count as a rookie? And the answer is, the guy says, Brilliant answer. This is one topic our price guide analysts have been debating for some time without really coming to a mutually acceptable conclusion. So this is something that they argued about. Several of us, in fact, believe the card cards actually should not be designated as rookies because they parallel the t- regular Topps Chrome. The decision eventually came down to the fact that the cards have totally separate packaging and distribution apart from the base top set. As such, the product stands on its own merits. Furthermore, it was readily apparent that the hobbyists accepted the cards as rookies. Since our job is to reflect market activity, we had no choice but to go along with the perception. What's interesting about this, and I was there for this in 1998, is that when Topps Chrome really took off is when those up arrows hit Beckett. The thing that's crazy to me about this is 
you have to ask the question, what if somebody with a really big voice in the room had said, no, Topps Chrome is just a parallel. And they made, um, they made the Chrome not have its up arrows for those months at a time in 1998. Um, but they had instead, you know, a multiplier in the Beckett. And they didn't really draw a lot of attention to it. Can you imagine how different our world would be if Beckett had determined that Topps Chrome was not a real rookie, but was just a parallel? And I say parallel, just a parallel. A lot of people love parallels, right? A lot of people really love parallels. That's so interesting. It's crazy to think of what that set might have been. There's a chance that they wouldn't have done 1997 Topps Chrome. How different our hobby would be today if Topps Chrome wouldn't have existed. It's pretty crazy to think about. Yeah, uh, the next uh, thing that I want to highlight is from the same page. It's called Issue of Timing, and the writer asks, I recently pulled a 96-97 Topps Chrome rookie of Kobe Bryant. Um, I got an offer for $350. Should I sell it? Well, here's what's interesting about that. I bought a Kobe Bryant rookie a couple of months ago, maybe a month ago, and it's graded a 9. It's actually graded from back in the 1990s, and it's worth about seven or $800. So in 22 years, it has doubled in value. Think about that for a second. It's interesting because Kobe's Topps rookie is actually considered one of the rare rookies out there. Only available via retail. Topps Chrome wasn't mass produced the way the lot of, a lot of them were. And it wasn't an easy pull. It was like one in two and a half boxes or something like that. It's only worth 2x what it was 22 years ago. You would earn far more in the stock market. You would earn far more in a lot of places. I think what this is evidence of, and this is applicable to our modern day, mass-produced rookies, regardless of how well they play, even if they end up being one of the very best players of all time, don't necessarily take off. That is interesting, my friends. Think about that. Okay, cool. So, all right. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that nugget. I thought that one was super interesting. All right, I got a couple more, and then we'll be done. So on page 16 and 17, there's a really cool article about, um, it's actually two articles, one on one side, one on the other side, and the, the, the guys are arguing with each other. And the guy on the left is arguing about arguing the case for oddball cards or, or cards that are like um, rare inserts and things like that. Whereas the guy on the right is referring to cards that are more commonly known and um, readily available and and arguing the merits between these two this argument is still happening 22 years later and so i'd really recommend you go and you read these uh, because again i think it's pretty timeless what's interesting about this is there's a couple quotes i want to read the guy who's um supporting oddball stuff writes the following this is an excerpt that i found i thought was interesting he said every hobbyist wants to define his collection in some way. Some guys can afford to spend $1,000 on some Jordan ultra-precious die-cut thing. Since most of us can't, Oddball lets us stand out by virtue of unique items picked up through old-fashioned hard work rather than an endless supply of dough. This is interesting, and this resonates with me. So he's actually not including 
really rare inserts in Oddball. The guy on the, the guy on the other side kind of does a little bit, but um, I like this idea. I like the idea that a true collector is somebody who goes out and finds something that's ultra rare and it's important to them, but not to other people. And it makes me think of some of the cards that are in my collector. It makes me feel like I'm more of an oddball guy. And I think that's probably true, actually. I think I'm more of an oddball collector than in, I'm going to go find the most awesome thing that everybody loves. Um, some of the things I love are things that everybody loves but and that are really popular. But I like that I have some stuff that are really meaningful to me that nobody else is really interested in. And that, to me, is the essence of oddball collecting. <laughs> On the other side, the guy who's arguing for kind of iconic cards or more mainstream cards says, um, and this is really interesting, he's arguing against Oddball, right? He said, granted, these things are hard to find. Oh, sorry, I missed, I missed a paragraph. He says, of course, it goes beyond the small stuff. Let's take the 1985 Prism Jewel stickers, for example. So those were known and discussed in Beckett. Uh, 22 years ago. These stunningly awful metallic cartoon stickers were originally available as premiums in gum machines for about a quarter. Granted, these things are hard to find, but $400 for a Michael Jordan? Where's the legitimacy to back that price up? You can easily get a rough 86-87 Fleer Jordan rookie for that money. Sure, it won't be sharp, sharp enough to slice a steak, but it's still a Jordan rookie. Well, ha! Mr. What's your name? Rob Springs. Dude, if you could go back in time and pick up one of those two cards for $400, you're going to take the Prism. The Prism's worth way more than that. And a rough Jordan rookie, although it's up significantly, probably 3x what, what, this, is, what this is talking about. Um, you know, a rough Jordan at this point, probably pick up for $1,200. A nice Prism rookie? 1985 Prism Jewel, the, the sticker, you, maybe some of you know, maybe, maybe some of you don't, that's like four grand. So while that's up 10x, his 86 Flare rookies um, worth about the same, or worth about 3x. So looking back at that, the thing that that tells me 20 something years later is again, and I will always mention this, and this is something that I will, I will beat the drum on this, rarity matters. Rarity matters most. And people will tell you, really smart people will tell you, I prefer Iconic over Rarity. Iconic doesn't work if it's not rare, my friends. It doesn't in the long run. Something that's going to be really wanted by the masses needs to both be Iconic and rare. It's what you want. That's the combination that you need. The last thing that I want to highlight in this in this Beckett that's really cool and I would um, suggest to you guys uh, for... Actually, there's a couple other things. Um, then the next thing I should say is there's between page 18 and page 23, <laughs> amazing, six pages covers every single Michael Jordan card ever made at that point. This list of Jordan cards would not fit in this book at this point. There are so many Jordan cards. But at this point, there was only, but at the point of this printing of this book, there was only six pages worth. And so if you want to go back in time and have a really interesting project, I would suggest you go back and you get this Beckett and you see how many of these you can get. All the cards that were printed through 1998. You might be able to get a good percentage of them without spending a ton of money. So, well, until a couple of weeks ago where they all blew up. All right, so that's that. The next page has an ad for 1997-98 EX2001. 
and it has a picture of Grant Hill's base card on it. Um, they talk about numbered sets, essential credentials, with a new twist on numbering. Who knew how, how incredibly popular that set would be at that time. Okay, now the last thing that I want to do, really the last thing, thing this time, is I'm just going to look through some of the interesting sets of the time and tell you some of the, the, the book values because I think that's interesting. So again, this is 1998 Beckett. So make a guess on what a Kobe Bryant 96 uh, top refractor was worth. And I'll get there in just a second. It doesn't have RC listed, to, listed next to his name, but it actually had a down arrow at that point. It was down to $900 for that card. Awesome. I wonder what a 96 EX credentials Kobe was. EX 2000. What? It's not listed under EX. I thought it would be. Maybe it's under Skybox. It is under Skybox. That's weird. I think they switched that at some point. A Kobe credentials was worth 200 bucks. <laughs> All right. Let's go. Let's go to 97 and do a couple of things there that should be most interesting to you guys. You could get a Michael Jordan promotion autograph from 97 SPX for 2500 bucks. It's a deal. Um, oh, you know what'll be fun? Let's go to the PMGs. PMG 1997. Oh, you know what I want to do? I want to look compare PMG Championship with PMG, the regular PMG. So 97 Metal Universe, the Michael Jordan PMG, 750 bucks. And the PMG Championship, 1200. See? I do have the better one. It told me back in 1998, mine's better. Sorry guys that own the regular PMG, mine's actually better than yours. Hate to tell you that. It's true. Um, <laughs> the 500 volts, uh, high, vo high voltage, Michael Jordan, numbered to a 500, booked for $150. Yes, love it. Set that I'm putting together right now, the Gold Universe out of 1997-98 Metal Universe. It's a 10 card base set out of retail packs at one in 120 packs. The whole set booked for 100 bucks. It actually books for probably maybe just 2X that today. So that's cool. Let's do 97 EX 2001. Um, hope this is interesting for you guys. Might be just a huge waste, but if you've made it this far in the episode, maybe you'll stick with me for the, for the next couple minutes. So Michael Jordan number 72 was $1,200. Very nice, the same as my, the same as my uh, PMG. Um, the, let's see what Stockton number to 27 is. That's mine that I have now, <laughs> 125 bucks. I paid a little bit more than that a couple years ago or last year. Just a little bit. All right. Um, let's see. Let's do one. Oh, you know what? I want to do one more that's interesting. 97 Finest. Because I always remember 97 Finest gold, gold embossed refractors as being the most popular parallel back in the day. And yes, this confirms it. $2,200 for Jordan. So Jordan's um, 97, 98 uh, embossed gold refractor. Um, which is also die cut, is worth more in 1998 than the PMG Championship and the PMG Red combined. Think about that for a second. That is crazy to think about. That is no longer the case, my friends. I want to look at one more thing. I want to look at the 
Upper Deck Game Dated. It's a card that I've been talking about all over the place. Yeah, they had Jordan at a thousand bucks for that. And for the game jerseys, the Jordan original game jerseys, twenty five hundred in here. That's crazy. It's only three x that today, and eight thousand for the autograph jersey. I think what you see, what what you see here, is some of the stuff that was more focused on at the time. That was more considered more elite, like the game jerseys and the um, the gold refractors at a finest. Some of those things um, they weren't lost with time at all. Um, whereas some of the things that came out of the cheaper products that weren't considered as high end have been more lost and they're more hard, they're more difficult to find at this point, and they've actually gained a greater value because of that. All right, I've spent too much time looking at the Beckett. That's, those are those are my Beckett bites from the 1998 July issue. Hope you guys enjoyed that. This is a little bit of a longer uh, longer episode than I intended. Try to keep it short, but I can't keep my mouth shut. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys are doing well and doing your very best with all the craziness that's going on in the world. The last thing I'll leave you with today is um, is an idea that that I've had kind of in my head the last couple days after I went to the to the store for the first time in a few weeks. It feels to me like this is a time that is very easy to lose our humanity a little bit. It's easy to not look at somebody else and remember that they're a human. They're behind their mask. Um, I, I would encourage you to look for opportunities to brighten people's day, to be to smile at people, to let them know that they're worthwhile, and um, I promise you that as you do that, that will make your life better. Life's too short to go through it and not try to make people's lives better. So that's my promise to you. Hope you guys have a really great week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like it, share it, do whatever else you want with it. And until next time, happy collecting.